All right, Romans 8. Romans 8. Um, you know, I, I, when we launched the church, man, what, 11 years ago, 12, I don't even, a long time ago, um, I found that, that one of the most common things I heard and even heard myself saying were things like, man, I'm just tired. Man, I'm just, I'm just exhausted. You know, when I would meet with people, I'd be like, how are you doing? Like, the first response was almost like, yeah, you know, I'm just tired. I'm just exhausted. And, and that's a cultural thing. We, we like to run on the ragged edge of exhaustion at all times. Like, we're not satisfied unless our schedule has to be scheduled. You know what I'm saying? Like, like if you don't schedule your schedule, you're going to miss half the stuff on your schedule because we just go from thing to thing and... and and, and we, we don't just schedule ourselves, we schedule our kids and, and we schedule our pets and we schedule, we're just going, we're going. And, uh, and as a result, a lot of times, I think we're just exhausted, um, which of course depletes not only our bodies, but our spirits, right? We are prone to um, discouragement and depression as a result of just running ragged. Over the last couple of years, that's only gotten worse right, to the normal insanity of our normal lives, work, friendships, kids, marriage, pets, we add pandemic and war, partisan drama, inflation, economic hardships. What do we do with all this? What do we do with it? You know what I'm saying? Like, like when you're exhausted, and, and you ever had that moment like when you're driving to work and slow guy in the fast lane just for whatever reason sets you off? Like you're raging. You're just raging. And it's like, okay, this is an oversized response to an undersized stimulus. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this is way too big of a response for this level of, and it's just everything that's been building up. You know what I'm saying? Like everything that's building up. And here's the thing. I, 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 think, what we're, I think what we're tempted to do Honestly, with the exhaustion, with the depression, with the discouragement, with the frustration, what we're tempted to do is grumble, to complain, to, to start fostering a sense of self-pity and, 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 and outrage that, that our lives can, how, you know, this isn't it's what we deserve, right? Um, we grumble. We grumble. Now, here's the thing. When we grumble, I'm going to just tell you outright, it robs us of our energy, it robs us of our dignity. It makes us actually feel more powerless and uh, entrenches us in our sense of being victims in life. So today, when we're looking at Romans 8, today we're going to see um, that not only do we have the Father's blessing, right, which we've been looking at for quite a while, um, this incredible proclamation at the beginning of Romans 8 that we have the Father's blessing um, but the reality is we can walk in that, the power of that blessing today. We, we, there's a very specific way we can live out that dignity in our lives today. Um, and it's going to happen when we see our current suffering in light of our future glory. And, uh, and we learn to groan instead of grumble. So let's take a look at our passage. We're looking at Romans 8, 15 through 18. Romans 8, 15 through 18. Um, and... Uh, and then we'll get into it. So I'm going to start reading in 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so um, we are entering into uh, the first kind of major transition in Romans 8. So the whole first section of, of Romans has been a proclamation of the Father's blessing, right? That's where we've been sitting for, I don't know, last six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, I don't know, forever. Um, it's worth it, right? We've been looking at how the Father has, um, has blessed us uh, in, 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 in the critical ways that we needed to be blessed, right? That, that, um, that we are standing in the blessing, even as we're waiting for the fullness of that blessing, right? So what have we established so far um, in Romans 8? That, that we stand secure in the Father's blessing. It's the Father's work. We receive it by grace. And as a result, uh, we are absolutely secure, not because we've earned it, uh, but because he gives it. And, uh, and of course, with the, the, the huge assurance that we can't lose it, right? What we didn't earn, we can't lose um, by not earning right? We receive it by grace. We, we stand in grace, right? When we look back, we see the cross and resurrection, the foundation of the Father's blessing, right? Um, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus took our condemnation on our behalf. He took our judgment and our place. He died our death so that when he rose from the dead, we could live his life, right? Um, he invites us into his resurrection victory. So when we look back, what we see is, uh, is the work of Christ on our behalf. When we look forward, what we see is the blessing of Christ, right? We look forward and we see our own resurrection. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks, right? That, the, that, that, that we see the full redemption of our bodies, that the spirit who raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us and will raise us from the dead. That is part and parcel with the, uh, the blessing of the Father, right? It is, it is to be justified is to be glorified, and to be glorified is to be raised and delivered into the fullness of what Christ has secured for us, right? So when we look back, we see blessing. When we look forward, we see blessing. And when we look around us now, what do we see? Well, we look around now, we see our security because we are in the Spirit, because the Spirit is in us. We've believed in Christ, and the Spirit comes in and dwells every believer. We see um, the reality that we still struggle with sin, but even though we still struggle with sin, that doesn't in any way threaten our security or our standing or the fullness of the blessing of God, right? That struggle is an internal struggle to live out the reality that God has given to us, right? We are adopted and we are secure, which means no matter how we are presently living, no matter how difficult the walk is, every single one of us is being called by the Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father, to relate to God, not as our judge, but as our dad, to come to him in our need, to come to him in our vulnerability, to come to him as one who has been blessed to be further blessed, right? We live in this moment blessed. And we live between the advents, the comings, right? We look back and we see the first coming of Christ, right? Christmas and Easter is all about the birth of Christ, the death, Good Friday, and the resurrection of Christ, Easter Sunday, right? We're coming up on Easter in a couple weeks. 
When we look forward, we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ, right? The first coming was to redeem. The second coming will be to restore. The first coming was to win the kingdom. The second coming will be to reveal the kingdom, right? The son who has become the son of God with power, so we read in Romans 1, will be shown as the son of God in power, as the, uh, the son of man revealed as king, right? We live between the advents, and in this space between the advents, we live in light of the kingdom that is coming, but we live in the suffering of the kingdom that is. We live in hope of the kingdom that is coming, but we live every single day with the sharp edges of the broken world around us. We are heirs of the kingdom living in the kingdom of man waiting for the revelation of the kingdom of God. So that's our context. Take a look at verse 17 at the beginning, right? To emphasize, if we are children, which he's already established, we are adopted into the family of God, we cry out, Abba, Father, and if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, we talked a little bit last week about this word heirs. I just want to dig in a little bit more. What does it mean to be an heir of God? And what is Jesus and what does it mean that we're, we're, we're co-heirs, right? What is Jesus inheriting and what are we co-heirs of? Um, this is a word worth paying attention to. It's a word that Paul has actually been developing over the last eight chapters. Um, this is a theme in the, in the early the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And, and, and so I just want to tie it in, right? I, I don't want to brush over it too quickly. I want you to see what he's, what he's saying. I'll show you a verse from, from Romans 4, okay? We, we covered this, I don't even know how long ago, right? In Romans 4... Um, Paul said this, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. All right, so we dug into this verse in great detail. Uh, it's all online. If you want to go back, if you missed the sermons, you want to dig into this, uh, I would invite you to do so. Uh, I just want to remind you of, of some critical information. God showed up to Abram, in the Old Testament, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, right? In Genesis 17, he's renamed Abraham. And in, in each of those chapters, he is creating a covenant that we call the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant of grace. Uh, one of the key critical covenants in the Old Testament. And this covenant had several key components to it. God promised Abram that he would have a son, even though he was childless and even though uh, Sarah, his wife, was barren. They would have a son. He promised that that son would be blessed by God, unique in all of human history, uniquely blessed by God. That that son would become the father of many nations. That Abraham would have descendants like the stars of the heaven or like sands of the seashore. That this son um, would be, become a blessing to the entire world. Not only would he be blessed, but he would become the man to become the blessing that the world needed. And that ultimately this son would receive an inheritance. And in Genesis 15, that inheritance is very clearly spelled out. Um, the boundaries are all clearly laid out in Genesis 15. It's what we know of today as the land of Israel. It's a piece of real estate right by the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful piece of land uh, that I haven't visited. Uh, I hope one day too, but... Um, uh, it is a very specific piece of land. Now, here's the thing with Old Testament prophecies. Old Testament prophecies often have both near and far fulfillments. 
When the prophets spoke in the Old Testament, or God revealed himself in the Old Testament and gave promises, there were often multiple stages of fulfillments of those prophecies. It was like looking at a mountain range from a distance. And in the distance, what you see is a single mountain range, right? But when you get there, what you realize is that some of the mountains are close and there are huge valleys between them and the other mountains, right? So from a distance, it looks like a single, a single place. But when you get there, you realize there are multiple stages to it. And Old Testament prophecies are like that. They have both near and far fulfillment. And that's the same here. So the near fulfillment of this promise to Abraham was his son Isaac, right? God gave him a son, and it was a miraculous gift. It was, Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah was, was 99, um, they were well past childbearing years, um, and God gave them this miraculous gift of this child. Isaac became the father of Jacob, Jacob was renamed Israel, and he became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel did go on to inhabit the land that God had promised to them, uh, as a fulfillment of that promise, right? But here's what I want you to catch and what Paul is making clear. Isaac wasn't the fulfillment of that promise. He was the foreshadowing of the fulfillment. God promised Abraham a son, but there was a greater, and, and, and there was a greater son to come than Isaac, right? There was a, a, a better fulfillment than, than simply the nation of Israel being created out of Abraham's lineage, Right? Um, and what we see is that when you follow the lineage down, um, you get to Jesus, right? Jesus was born as a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Um, he was the true seed or the true son of Abraham. He became the father of many nations, right? Jesus will have descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and as numerous as the sands of the seashore, right? Why? Because he's creating a new humanity. He's not doing it through his loins of, of producing a physical lineage. He's creating a spiritual lineage through the spiritual path that Abraham marked for us. All of us who have the faith of Abraham become children of Abraham. When we become children of Abraham, we become part of this inheritance, this spiritual inheritance of Christ. And what does he inherit? According to Romans 4.13, Paul says Abraham was promised the world, which is an interesting distinction because in Genesis 15, it's not the world. It's a very specific piece of real estate by the Mediterranean Sea. But in Romans chapter 4, Paul says, nah, that was the foreshadowing. That's not the true inheritance. The true inheritance is a redeemed and restored world the whole thing. Listen, y'all, uh, as followers of Christ, you aren't just citizens in the kingdom of God, right? You don't just have um, a, a, a year-long entry pass where you get to come in and enjoy all of the benefits, all the rides. Um, you, you, it's not even that you have a quick pass, you know, you get to jump to the front of the line. Um, you're royalty in the kingdom. You're not just citizens of the kingdom. You are heirs of the kingdom, right? In Romans 5, when Paul is talking about Jesus, he compares Jesus to Adam. And we learn that Jesus wasn't just a perfect man, as if there were such a thing as just a perfect man, but he was more than that. He came to complete what the first Adam failed to do. He came to be the last Adam, the one who actually fulfilled the human job description of, of, of being created in the image of God and walking in humble dependence on God and carrying out the, the, the authority, the dominion, 
the stewardship entrusted to humankind. Jesus succeeded as a human where Adam failed, which is um, pretty incredible, right? He was the, uh, as, as he's described, the second man. He was only the second man to walk the face of the earth who was human as humans were created to be. And he did it to create a new humanity. He did it so that he could redeem an entire new humanity to walk in that dignity, to walk in that authority, to walk in that dominion, to be crowned with that glory. We are those co-heirs. We have that authority. As Peter says, we are even now kings and priests to God. Not just citizens of the kingdom, kings and, and, and in the kingdom, right? You stand in regal waiting. You are standing on the side waiting to be introduced, not simply to watch the coronation, but to be coronated. You are being invited in as co-heirs, co-regents with Christ. You are a child of God, adopted into the family of God, and you are co-heirs with Christ. Created in the image of God and having placed your faith in Christ, you are now recreated in the image of Jesus, which is where this whole chapter is going, by the way. Romans 8, 29. Right? Whom he foreknew, those he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That, we're going to get there. That's, that's the heart of this chapter where everything is driving. But that's the point. You are, being, you are created in the image of God, and having believed in Christ, you are now recreated in the image of Jesus, redeemed, restored. So, so far in Romans 8, we've been looking at one long proclamation of goodness, one long proclamation of the Father's blessing. And the news is, if we really understand it so good, it is in fact staggering, which is part of the reason that the end of this verse feels so jarring, right? Take a look at the end of the verse with me. If we are children, which he's saying since, since we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Into this long list of absolute blessings, into this long description of the Father's blessing to us in Christ, Paul suddenly introduces the concept of suffering. Huh. Well, why does he have to go and do that, right? It's going so well. It's going so well. He says, man, we're going to be glorified with Jesus, provided we suffer with him. Does that make the blessing conditional? Does that mean that, that we will be glorified as long as we suffer in the right way, suffer enough, engage the suffering in, in a specific way? Um, must I suffer to be blessed? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. You don't, have to be, you don't have to suffer to earn the blessing, but you do have to suffer because there is no living in a broken world without getting cut on its sharp edges. You will suffer. There is no going through this life without pain. The issue isn't whether or not you're going to suffer. The issue is how you're going to suffer. How are you going to engage the pain in this life? You're either going to do it in the spirit or you're going to do it in the flesh. 
because there is no living in this life without suffering, right? Jesus said that in John 16, when he was talking to his disciples. Um, he said, in this life, you will have tribulation. You will have suffering. You will have pain. It, it is a given. There is no life in this broken world while we're waiting for the fullness of the kingdom without suffering, right? And that could be persecution. There are people around the world right now suffering persecution for their faith. People right now that, that are suffering economic um, difficulties, even threats to their families and their physical well-being as a result of their faith, right? Um, it could be persecution, but it could also be a flat tire on the way to work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it could, be, it could be things happening that aren't supposed to happen. It could be the casual betrayal of a friend. It could be a sickness that intrudes into your sense of health, well-being, and hope. See, the question isn't whether we suffer. We will suffer. The question is how we suffer. And we're either going to see these sufferings as unjust intrusions on what we deserve, right? Because I think we all kind of just believe that, that we're entitled to uh, low-maintenance, hassle-free lives, right? Isn't that kind of our assumption? And when anything intrudes on that, it's like, how dare you? How dare you disrupt my, don't you know how busy my schedule is? Don't you know how many things I have to get done today? Don't you know I had all the dominoes lined up to fall in perfect order? And, and now you show up with a problem, or this goes wrong, or, or this thing that was unforeseen, and it's like, Lord, you could have prevented this. You could have stopped that from happening. Why? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing it to me? And why are you doing it now? We just see suffering as an intrusion into what we deserve, or... Or we can grow to see suffering as a necessary part of living in an unjust world in which human sin is the intrusion. We're the ones that broke the world and we're living with the consequences of that brokenness, the sharp edges of a world that has lost the shalom of God. See, Paul's encouraging us to recognize that we have an obligation as children of God, as heirs of God, as co-heirs with Christ, there is a way we need to suffer. Paul encourages us to engage our suffering not as a distraction from our adoption into God's family, but as um, those who are adopted with, with our identity as children of God firmly in place and engaging the suffering not as something that God has caused, but as something that God is fixing. Right? Not as something that is unnatural to the Christian life, but as something that is unavoidable in a broken world. To suffer with our personal identity rooted in our adoption as children and our position as heirs of the kingdom of God and our hope firmly set on the kingdom to come, right? Take a look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Um, the relationship of pain and future glory. And we're going to talk about Paul's specific experience in a moment, but, but there's a principle here that um, as I was thinking about this, I, I, something that in 2020 I kind of discovered, right? So in 2020, I went from being an avid non-runner to deciding I was going to run a marathon. I don't know why, the insanity of the pandemic. I mean, that's really the only thing that explains it, okay? Like when I say I was an avid run runner, I mean it. Like, like running was like repulsive to me, okay? Uh, I liked being physically active, hiking, riding my bike, anything that was kind of fun and, and, and distracted me from pain. But in running, there's just pain. You know what I'm saying? Like it is, you're just running, <laughs> right? And especially when you're doing distance running, that's all it is. Like, like I would have, you know, especially in the training, I would be out there for an hour and a half to over two hours every day, well, five days a week, running. That's a lot of time. Just like what I learned is that training for a marathon is really just training uh, how to deal with discomfort for long periods of time, right? Um, and so, you know, there were some benefits to it. There's no doubt about it. Some things that really hooked me. I'll, I'll tell you that. There is something as a runner's high. Um, it definitely is awesome when the endorphins get released and you're like, mm, yeah, I feel good. And, and, and it helps you process, like, like, and I'm going through a super stressful stage in my life. And, and, and when you get to that place, it just lets you process things, you know, um, in a very different perspective, right? In a very different way. I got to listen to audiobooks. Um, I didn't listen to music that much, but man, I plow through the books, um, which was a blast. I got to, to listen to fiction. I got to listen to uh, history. I got listened to, to theology. Um, you know, I was out there engaging all of this stuff, right? Um, but it was all for a goal. I'm very goal-oriented, and the goal, of course, was to run a marathon. I don't know why. Like, why a marathon? Why couldn't I have trained for a 5K, right? I don't know. I think it was, I had, like, I just kind of get lit up by big, hairy, audacious goals, right? That kind of like, well, that sounds really stupid. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, and, and so the marathon was it, right? I did a bunch of other races on the way, but they were, they were purely part of the training. Like it was just, like I was going to do that 26 point whatever it is miles. I was, <laughs> it was dumb. Uh, and so I've learned, like even in the prep, that, that a marathon is essentially two races. And this is true even for those who are in the best shape. There's the first 20 miles, which is conditioning. And there's the last six miles, which is heart. And I heard that, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I got lots of heart. I'm like, I can push through hard things. That's what I do. Um, and so I trained. I trained. I trained and trained and trained. And, um, and I got to a point where, like, it was realistic, right? And so I did it. I did it. And I've told you guys about it. First 17 miles, like, I was actually having fun, which is ridiculous. Like, I was joking with the, the, the people that were cheering on the sides, you know, uh, I, you know, I was running by and they're like, yeah, keep going. I'm like, you're the best. You're the best cheer. You're the best this. You're, you're the best person looking at an iPhone I've ever seen. You know, just, just you know, and, and being silly and, and probably just being a little dumb. Um, but I hit mile 17 and things didn't feel so good. Like things started feeling really kind of wonky. Um, and, and I kind of went into what's called the, the, the tunnel, um, which is just this long, dark place. And, uh, and I could tell because Lauren and, and some of our friends kept driving and were cheering me on. And 
Um, and, and so I could tell by, from her face that she was getting concerned. At first, she was playful. It was great. It was fun. And then she's like, like, you okay? Like, I would be coming by. And I would just put, I wouldn't even, like, I just had my head down. She would try to talk to me. I would not talk. And then I had the last six miles. The last six miles, legitimately the hardest physical thing I've ever done in my life. Um, it was, I was cramping. I was nauseated. I, I, everything in me wanted to just sit on the curb and cry. Everything, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was just pain. You're like, Steve, you're really selling this. It was, um, it was rough. It was rough. But you know what got me through it? Strangely enough, I fixated my mind on this thing right here. This thing right here is what I fixated my mind on. I kept telling myself, if I don't finish this race, I have nothing to show for the pain. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just was like, I don't get the medal. It, it was all for the medal, right? And it got to a point where um, I couldn't run. Like, legitimately, even downhill, I couldn't run. I was walking at the end of it. Um, and uh, I didn't realize I had become extremely dehydrated. It was my first warm weather run. I had done all my training in the winter. And um, I, I, was, I was weaving. Um, Lauren still resents that they didn't actually pull me off the course. And, but I just wouldn't quit. I remember at the end, like I remember seeing Lauren. Like one of my friends came and ran next to me. I don't remember that at all. Uh, I remember seeing the finish line like the big inflate, the whatever it is that you cross through. I remember them announcing my name. And I remember him saying something like, he's like, and hey, Steve Mizell. And then he was like, y'all, that's the look of determination right there. I don't, I guess I looked pretty, and I got across and there's this lady standing there like this. And I just stuck my head out and I got this thing put around my neck. And then I sat down and then the tremors started and I couldn't move. And then the next thing I know, like I'm on a gurney and they're wheeling me off um, and Lauren is pouring Powerade down my throat. Thankfully, I didn't require an IV, but it was about 45 minutes of her just pouring fluids into me before I started feeling human again. My point is this, um, what got me through that discomfort? What was it that drove me? And you're like, Steve, your stupidity. Yeah. It was. I mean, honestly, because I just get obsessed on specific goals, and for whatever reason, right, this thing, I needed to have it. It's, look, it's even a bottle opener. I don't know if you see that. It's like, it can be a coaster, too. It, it, it is useful, right? It's, it, is, it is useful, right? But, but what got me through it was the drive for glory. Like, there was something that I wanted more than I wanted to get out of the discomfort. There was something I craved that was greater than the desire to sit down on the curb and just wait for somebody in a golf cart to come pick me up. It was knowing that I had actually accomplished something, that I had crossed the finish line, that I, that I had actually achieved a goal, right? Now, here's what's ironic is the original marathoners did it for a wreath, right? They would cross the finish line near dead, and they would get a, a, an actual wreath around their head that would wither and die within a week. And you're like, why would you go through so much pain and struggle for something that would die or for a trinket <laughs> that, that goes into a drawer and is like, yeah, that, that's cute, right? Why, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, we don't labor for a crown that passes away. 
1 Corinthians 9, he says, he, we're laboring for an immortal crown. For the kind of glory that doesn't pass away. The kind of glory that, that doesn't fade. We're in a marathon. And when we cross the finish line, the glory that we're going to see is going to be an imperishable crown on our heads. It will be a glory that will lift us and empower us and change us and transform us. And in the same way, through those final six miles, I just had this picture in my head of my getting this thing, which was nothing like I thought it would be, <laughs> right? As we're working through the suffering of this world and we picture the glory that will be ours, it also will be nothing like we imagined. It'll be better. It'll be more transformative, more long-lasting, more glorious, right? Paul is saying you need to go through this life with your imagination anchored in the glory of the new creation. You need to engage the daily suffering and pain with the glory of resurrection in front of you, the glory of restored shalom, the glory of the kingdom of God manifest and made visible all around you where all things will be set right, where all leaders will exercise their authority for the thriving and the good of the people around them. They will use their power to increase the fullness and flourishing of life, not to diminish it or rob it or destroy it. Where, where we will be able to use our faculties, our creativeness, our, our productivity, our drive in unison with the Spirit of God and everyone around us to, to produce a flourishing and a fullness in human experience never seen and only desired. What is ahead of us is so glorious, so incredible, that Paul says it can't even be compared to the suffering of this life. No matter how bad the pain becomes, no matter how dark the agony tunnel becomes where you are simply focused on putting one foot in front of the other, It's nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to you, that will crown you, that will transform you, that will envelop you. Paul's a guy that knew something about suffering, right? I don't know if you remember much about Paul's life. He's a guy that was in a shipwreck, bit by a snake, stoned, betrayed by friends, lied about by enemies, lonely, single. He even had some mysterious thorn in the flesh that he talks about. It never tells us what it is. Just, he says it's a messenger from Satan. It's something that God allowed in his life, a unique and personal form of pain and suffering that God allowed purely to keep him humble because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God was giving to him. And it's Paul who's saying to us, I don't care how bad the suffering is. It doesn't compare. It doesn't compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. That glory will be so great. That joy will be so complete that everything that is sad will be undone. And every tear will be wiped away. It doesn't 
compare. We are to live our present suffering with our identity rooted in the Father's blessing, right? We are children. We are adopted into the family of God, and our hope is firmly set on the future revelation of the fullness of that blessing, the glory of the kingdom becoming manifest in this world where all things are not only redeemed, but they are restored. And we are to live in light of that kingdom now in anticipation of that future kingdom, but in the power of that identity now. How do we do that? How do we do that when things hurt? How do we do that when things are confusing and broken? How do we do that? Do we just grit our teeth and passively wait for the pain to go away? Do we just close our eyes and try not to look at all of the injustice and the evil and the suffering that is around us? No. Because we've been given a mission, and that mission is to love. You want to know what it is to live out your royal priesthood? You want to know what it is to live out the regal bearing of your kingship now? It is to love. And love is never passive. What does love do in the face of suffering? What does love do in the face of injustice? What does love do in the face of betrayal? It works to fix what it can to intercede where it can, to provide comfort where it can, to find community where it can. And it groans for all the spaces and ways it can't. Our flesh wants to grumble and complain, but love compels us to groan. What's the difference between grumbling and groaning? Well, when our sinful, selfish hearts are confronted with the brokenness of this world, when, when we are confronted with suffering, then we see it as a, an unjust intrusion, a sickness, economic inequality, hardship. When, when somebody's promoted at work for our work, when, when somebody um, uh, creates systems around us that we're powerless to change, and, and as a result, we face exploitation or diminishment, where people abuse their power over us, or we see them abusing their power over others, when we are personally betrayed, when the world world is heavy, and when our heart is tired, our flesh wants to complain, to rise up and say, it is not fair, it is not what I deserve, it's wrong. But the Spirit leads us to groan, not to selfishly complain against God, but instead to humbly lament to God. Groaning is one of the key words in this section of the book of Romans. In fact, Paul describes a chorus of groaning that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. In verse 22, he says, the whole creation groans together under the pains of childbirth. All of creation. And then in verse 23, he says, we groan, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. In verse 26, it says, the Spirit himself groans in prayer because we don't know how to lament like we should, so he comes and actually gives us the groaning that we should be offering up but don't even know how. It's an incredible chorus of creation and those who are redeemed and the Spirit of God all in this age of waiting lamenting, yearning. Y'all, groaning isn't passive. It is some of the hardest work God calls us to do. It is actively waiting. 
It is a test and an expression of our faith. It is looking at the brokenness, experiencing the pain, and not turning away. Not self-medicating with distractions or, 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 or other pursuits. It is not our attempt to turn off the pain, deny the pain, refuse the pain, or shift the pain to others. It is, it is refusing to grow bitter and self-focused in the experience of pain. Groaning requires us to stay fully present, fully awake, while we wait on God bringing our pain to God in lament. Groaning, when you find yourself, let's talk about how this looks, right? Groaning, when, when you find yourself reliving painful conversations where somebody said hurtful things to you, accused you of things, misrepresented you, undermined you. Groaning, groaning, is saying, God, this hurts. Even in the midst of that memory, even in the midst of that thing being stirred up in your imagination, it is bringing it to God to say, God, this hurts, instead of rehearsing that conversation, reliving that experience, twisting it into a fantasy of revenge where you said the perfect thing at the perfect time and got the perfect jab in. It is instead of pulling it into a place of resentment and bitterness pushing it out in a groan of lament to God. Lord, this wasn't fair and it hurt. Groaning says, Lord, I forgive him. Lord, I forgive her, even when everything in you doesn't want to forgive. It's a declaration of truth even when everything in your heart doesn't want to embrace that truth. I forgive. Lord, help my unforgiveness. Groaning says, Lord, I am afraid. I am weak. I am helpless. I am vulnerable in ways that I hate being vulnerable. Meet me in my sorrow. And strengthen me. Groaning is praying Psalm 10 over and over again in the face of the insane and depraved violence of men. Groaning is coming to the God who can set all things right when all things are going wrong. Groaning is turning your face toward God instead of away when you are so depressed that it phys physically feels like nausea and you want to puke. It's saying, Lord, I'm here, where are you? I'm here, where are you? Because it's faith knowing he is here even if I don't feel his presence, that his hand is on my shoulder. 
even if he feels a million miles away. Groaning is not passive. It is a bold act of faith. It is willing to step into the pain and not away. To claim the glory of being a child of God when everything around you wants to rob you of your dignity and make you feel powerless and small. It is to rise up instead of run away. When we groan, when we lament, we are exercising our power. We are not powerless. We are standing in our regal dignity. We are not defrauded and robbed. We may be made the victim of those who are doing injustice, but that does not rob us of our glory, our power, and our identity as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are in that moment calling into the broken present, the glory of our future restoration. We are inviting the Spirit to come into the mess and not only help us lament like we should, but actually to become the voice of our lament. And it will awaken within us a yearning, a joyful, painful yearning that will simply find its expression in the prayer. Come soon, Lord Jesus, come soon. All right, I'm gonna close this there. I'm gonna give us some response questions and give you a few moments to just pray to respond to God, to let him speak to you so that you can speak to him. Um, and then we're going to share communion. But first, we'll have a time of response. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to take a few moments uh, to simply respond to God. Father, we thank you that you're with us in our brokenness that you're not a God who stands apart and distant from our pain. Even though you have every right, you didn't cause it. Instead, you enter into it. Lord Jesus, you suffered in ways we can't imagine. When you took the brokenness of this world, dying under the weight of it, Meet us in our suffering. Deepen our faith, Lord, so that we don't mistrust your heart. I know there are, I have friends here, Lord, who, who are going through profound suffering and deep pain. Who are still processing wounds they received years ago, but the pain doesn't go away because the wound is so slow to heal. <clears throat> There are friends, Lord, who are tempted to try to find their relief in the politics of this world or the material wealth of this world or 
and the success of this world. Spirit, will you invite them to the greater dignity, the greater freedom, the greater power of simply resting in you instead of striving? Meet us where we are, Lord. Meet us where we are.